0: All right 1 Peter 5 penultimate sermon on uh, Peter's epistle and um, and so we'll read from 1 Peter 5 verse 6 to 11 now I'm not sure if the children could remember what the spiritual rule was that we learned last week it was a spiritual rule it was a proverb that was taken uh, out of the book of Proverbs and um, and I wonder if you can sort of go back into your mind palace. It had the word grace in it. It had the word humble in it. It had the word proud in it. Any ideas yet? Well, let me remind you. Therefore, let those who suffer co- no—that's the wrong one. <laughs> God opposes the proud. Any any closer, Timothy? No closer at all. Stefan. It's your birthday, come on it's my birthday you should impress me now okay Reuben grace like water what does it do flows flows to the very bottom grace like water flows to the very bottom we're almost there we see if this helps any of you now grace it says yeah um, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble to those at the very bottom God gives grace so if you want grace you've got to be at the very bottom if you want to avoid the opposition the hostility of God you've got to be at the very bottom that's where you receive this gift of grace and so that's the spiritual rule that Peter stated last week and he worked it out in two categories he'd worked it out for elders and he worked it out for the rest of the church But he drills deeper into it because he knows that elders and church members have this one thing in common, and that's their hearts that are prone to two things, pride and anxiety. And he wants to address both of those in pride and anxiety. And he wants to apply this rule. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He wants to apply this rule now to their hearts. And so let's hear how he does this. One Peter 5 verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone. To devour resist them firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you've suffered for a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, what a glorious passage. It is just fascinating. It's fantastic. And something that isn't immediately apparent when we read it in the English is that it's bookended by two words. Two words that when we understand these two words, we'll understand our place in God's, God's hierarchy and God's setup. And uh, and and I'll first show you these two words and then try and explain why it helps us to figure out where we fit in. The word is the word mighty. Mighty. You'll see that there in verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. You say, okay, that's great. That's the first word mighty. It's the one bookend. But Krug, you said there'll be two. Where's the other one? So we're looking at the very last verse. I just read verse 11. You say, well, actually, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I can't see the word mighty in there. There's no word mighty in there. Except if you were to read it in the Greek, you'll see it says, under the mighty hand of God, in verse 6, to him be the might forever and ever. So the might of God is it two bookends of this passage, the might of God. What does it mean when God says he's might? He's might. Let's think of some synonyms, and let me get the children to think about some of those for a moment. Might. What, uh, what can you think of? What words are similar words to might? Not, I might go to the shops. That's not the might I'm after. <laughs> Or a widow puts a mite in her pocket. It, can you get a mite in your pocket? Is that? No, I don't know. No, no. might. I'll do some actions. Oh, might tear my shirt. Hang on. Let me just not do that. Uh, Ruben? Power. Strength. Mighty hand of God. So I'll roll up my arms to show you my muscle. There's no muscles to see here, I'm afraid. But, uh, but that's the word, mighty hand, mighty arm of God, mighty power, mighty strength of God. And and Peter reminds his hearers his of these two bookends. He's going to talk about things on the inside of the two bookends that's quite fragile, like books when they stand on their own without <laughs> anything holding them up. They, they want to fall over, don't they, Jonah? But if you bookend them with two really strong things, heavy, it keeps everything upright. And... And our place is between God's might and God's might to keep us as fragile human beings upright. To keep us up. Now, let's drill into this mighty arm of God for a minute before we go look at our vulnerability, at our fragility, at our propensity to fall over, at at our weakness. Let's first see God's might. When the disciples... When the Jews heard these words the first time, the mighty hand of God, it would have taken them back immediately to language from the time of God's people in Egypt. Can you remember when God's people were slaves in Egypt? Pharaoh was the mighty one. He was the king. Uh, and he built big, uh, big memorials, big temples of his own might. So he had the slaves work incredibly hard so they become weaker. Uh, and more diminished as they work. And they build these big towers. And these, these big palaces for Pharaoh. And as they did this. His fame went up. He just looked better and glorious. And more amazing. And they looked weaker. And thinner and tireder. And, um, and then the strange thing started to happen. God is said to have revealed his mighty arm. When he liberated his people out of Egypt. the the word mighty hand or mighty arm of god never appears again in the new testament it's just this one verse humble yourself to the mighty hand of god this phrase the mighty hand of god it's sort of a marker to speak about all that god did to take his people out of egypt to save them out of the mighty hand of pharaoh and Moses spoke about God's liberation of his people out of Egypt like that all the time. It's in Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 that we hear it the clearest. He says, you shall remember that you were as a slave in the land of Egypt. Not as a slave. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And he speaks like this in Deuteronomy uh, another seven times, in 3.24, in 4.34, in 7.19, in 9.26, in 11.2, and in the book of Exodus. There's these six or seven references that speaks of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt by his mighty arm, his mighty hand. And so when Peter speaks to his disciples, he's saying to them, this is the first thing. I'm going to talk to you about your anxieties. I'm going to talk to you about your worries. I'm going to talk to you about your concerns. I'm going to talk to you about the devil. I'm going to talk, talk to you about the supernatural, about demons. I'm going to talk to you about things that will make you scared. But what you need to know is that you are between these two bookends of God's mighty arm. The same arm... That saved these people out of Egypt. That's what I want you to remember. Alright, so there's the word mighty. We've got an idea of that. Now let's delve into some of our, our vulnerabilities. Some of our problems. The text goes on. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. That's verse, verse 6. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. We'll come back to that at the end. The exaltation. The the glorification. But let's go to the vulnerabilities now. Casting all your anxieties on him. Casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. You'll carry on now to talk about the devil in a moment. Let's just talk about anxieties for the moment. Casting all your anxieties on him. Anxieties. Things you worry about. A good question to ask yourself right, right now is. What am I worried about? What am I anxious about? What is my biggest concern at the moment? (coughs) What is it that's causing me sleepless nights? What is it that truly concerns me? Get a clear idea of that. If you've got 10 or 15 anxieties at the moment, take your top pick. Take your top one. And now have this image in your mind. The verb that goes with that word is cast all your anxieties on him. Now, I've seen people cast nets. You know, they stand on a boat uh, and they, they they lean down and they gather the net all crumpled up. They gather it up in their hands. And then when they cast it, they sort of, they, they grab hold of the thing and then they throw it. They let go of the whole thing. And it flies through the air and it lands on the water. Uh, and then it slowly drifts to the bottom They start to pull a rope that closes it at the bottom and they start pulling it and this net closes in around the fish that was captured and then they draw it in. That that verb, casting your anxiety, starts with grabbing hold of the net. And therefore I want you to grab hold of your anxiety, just one for the moment, but you could also just gather them all up in the way that you gather up a net. Gather them all up, take the whole thing and then cast it on the Lord. Cast it, that means throw it away from yourself. It's a deliberate, centered action. God is not giving us lukewarm advice when it comes to our anxieties, our worries and concerns. He doesn't say this, oh, well, don't worry, it'll be better sometime. Pat on the back. Everyone suffers. Everyone, every, everybody hurts. It doesn't just do that. He says, cast all your anxieties, Cast all your your own anxieties. You've got your own. You've got your. I've got my anxieties. I should not cast your anxieties on the Lord. I should cast my anxieties on the Lord. I should cast. I should grab hold of it and then throw it, throw it away from myself, and onto the Lord. That that's the picture that He wants us to see. So, if you take anything from the sermon today, that's really where I want you to go and. Go and think on and meditate on. Can I I gather up my anxieties? Take all of them and and just cast them away from myself onto the Lord. Onto the Lord. It's strange. It's just hinted at in this passage that if you cast your anxieties away to to the Lord like that, it will bring in a harvest. It actually has the, the, the consequence that it might bring up a catch. That as you... Pull in through faith you cast it. And then you you get a reward from doing that. And the reward is peace. Uh, The reward is a new perspective on life. The reward is seeing God to be able to do much more than you've ever dreamt or imagined. It it brings a new liberation to your life. A new confidence to your life. If you do this. That that could be the, the, the harvest. The fish that you catch as you cast your anxieties away. But the text isn't clear about that. But cast it away. Cast it unto the Lord. It's important to do this because our anxieties is one thing, but the devil is another. And these two, our anxieties, our worries, and the devil work in concert. One commentator said it's a bit like uh a... Beautiful. Well, thank you. Sorry about that for those of you that have been following us at home or wherever. We're back. And let's do a quick recap for my benefit and for yours, I suppose. (laughs) We said, the mighty hand of God are the two bookends. The mighty hand of God, inside the mighty hand of God, is a vulnerable mess. That vulnerable mess is us with all of our anxieties, all our worries. And the devil who seeks to destroy and to devour people. And the way that he does that, he plays on our anxieties. He takes all of our worries, the ones that we've not cast on the Lord... And he whips them up into a frenzy until we do things that are erratic. Until we do things that are irrational. Until we do things that are not sober-minded, are not humble. Until we do things uh, that does not allow us to be more alert and more watchful. But instead we give in and we give over and we become prey and we become captured. That's the picture that we have here. The trouble with this picture that I've just outlined is... Uh, you might say that as modern people, we do not believe in the devil. And so it's one thing that you're talking about the devil all the time, but but I thought we're past that belief. Um, and so just a quick word on that. Uh, if you are drawn to Christianity and to the church, it relies on uh, understanding of the universe that entails both what you can see and what you can't. Uh, And if you believe in Christianity, you believe in a a God that is spiritual and his adversary and ours, the devil with his demons, that are out not just to destroy or or assault God, but to destroy us as his image bearers. Uh, And so to believe in the supernatural, uh, you've got to believe in both the good side of that being God, the Holy Spirit and His Son, and the bad side of that, uh, and that is uh, demons and the devil uh, and, and principalities and powers that seek to destroy you. And to bring that point home a little bit more, let's just briefly look at the at the devil in Job 1. And I'll just read a few verses from that. Uh, and you might have heard this before. But in Job 1, it says the following from verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then we know he started to torment and uh, and hurt Job and his family. It's a terrifying passage. It's a terrifying passage. Particularly uh, when you start to realize that it seems that God is allowing these terrible things that happened in Job's life. God is allowing these things to happen. It's made even slightly worse if we remember in one Peter that uh, God speaks about suffering that will come to the church, uh, and he would say that all of these sufferings are uh, a, a way of, a way of these trials and sufferings are a way of purifying the church. It seems like God is allowing the devil to do these terrible things to his church and to his believers. Uh, and that makes him, in some way, complicit in these terrible acts. So that causes a whole range of questions. Now, into these questions, Peter comes and he defines it in a different way. He, he speaks of the devil as one that is out to destroy you, to devour you. He, he speaks of the devil. As, a, as an animal. As an animal. He speaks of the devil as a lion. And his language that we find in the New Testament, in, in, in Revelation as well, he speaks of the devil there as a red dragon. And it matches the language in the book of Genesis where the devil is, is a serpent. And what Peter is doing is warning us about the strategy of the devil. A strategy that the Lord will use for good. But nonetheless, this is the chosen strategy of the devil. The devil comes... And he comes and he's out to devour and destroy and he does it through poisoning, through poisoning God's people. Where God comes and he promises to his people. You see, it's a word game. It's a word war. That God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he promises if they did not eat of that tree of good and evil, they will live eternally. And they will grow in maturity. And they will reign with God forever and ever. God makes a promise. If you did not eat off the tree, you will live. And the devil comes in the form of an animal. His strategy. And he comes to deceive and accuse and bend words and lie in order to poison the minds of God's people. Because he's out to destroy them. And Peter is clear about this. This is not a surprise to God. This whole activity, his whole strategy is so predictable that Peter can warn the disciples... He can warn them. And therefore, the warning is very simple. He says, first, cast your anxieties on the Lord, because then there's no strings for him to play with for a start. And next, be sober-minded and be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Another way of saying that is, is be clear, clear-headed uh, and, and be on the alert. Uh, be, like, be like sheep. That knows there's a lion on the prowl. Be, be like sheep that knows they're in danger, and therefore constantly watch and look and make plans and and be alert. We know the devil's strategy. We know the Lord is allowing this to happen, and the Lord is in the midst of this terrible trial happening to His church. He is giving us clear strategy what to do. He says, "Cast your anxieties on Me. Be sober-minded." Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, someone is out to get you. Your adversary seeks to destroy you. And then verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith. My goodness. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Resist him. If resisting him was possible, Adam and Eve would have done it in the garden. They would have resisted him. But Peter is saying there is a way that you can resist the devil. And he's giving us more clues as to the strategy. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith. If God is a promise-making God, then our part to play in God's promise-making is believing, putting our faith in his promises. Firm in the faith that God has said this will happen, therefore believe it. And one of the ways that our faith is undermined is why what follows. He then says, firm in the faith, Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brother throughout the world. What's going on there? You see, one of the anxieties the devil plays on us, and that we eagerly believe, and it disorientates us, it distracts us, it numbs us, is we believe, for me, I'm the only one in this terrible situation. I can't believe that this is happening to me. Look at them, they're so comfortable. They've got their lives all sorted out. And here I am, and I'm struggling. And I've done, I don't have this, and I don't have that, and I don't have this, and they have that, and I don't have that. And you constantly become reflective and comparative, looking at your neighbors, looking at your fellow brothers and sisters, and thinking their lives are so much easier. And so it's one thing to cast all these anxieties on the Lord, but if the devil can hold this fundamental uh, 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 resistance that's in your heart, if you can hold on to that, where you're constantly saying, Look, I, I don't worry about my income anymore, I don't worry about this. But you know what? I really look down on that group of people because they have this and I don't have that. I really look down on that church, or on those Christians, or on those believers over there, because they have this and I don't have that. It looks like their relationship with the Lord is so much deeper and so much more pleasant. And and you play on that fundamental anxiety that you are somehow God's black sheep. That you are somehow not God's favourite. No. Peter is telling us the strategy to live within the two bookends of God's mighty hand is to see, to to, to meet our anxieties, one, by casting them on the Lord. And he then gives us a reason why, because he cares for you. That's the promise that you need to be firm in your faith with, that God cares for me. The problem with that is the moment you say, God cares for me, you think, well, he cares for me, of course, he cares for me in general, but he doesn't know about my eating disorder. He doesn't know about my sexual sin or my deviancies. He doesn't know about my addictions. And if he did, and if I told someone about that, I'd be shamed, and I'd feel guilty, and I'd want to run away. God cares, yes, of course, in general, but not specific. Peter is saying, cast all your anxieties on him, why? Because God cares for you. And then he gives an absolute sucker punch to the strategy of hiding your anxieties from the Lord. He comes to the, towards the end and he says, not only should you cast all your anxieties on the Lord, because in verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will do all kinds of wonderful things to you. But the God of all grace, can you see the two things that's matching with each other? He says, All anxieties cast to the Lord. And the Lord of all grace will meet all of your anxieties. It's only when you cast all your anxieties on him. The God of all grace will meet your anxieties with grace. He's teaching us a strategy to resist the devil. He's teaching us a strategy to live really as ambassadors of God's new kingdom in this broken world. In these broken bodies of ours. He's teaching us. He's teaching us this because he himself is busy making us new. And with this, I'll end. He himself is making us new. I know the strategy feels like a one, two, three that I do. Okay. Thanks, Kruger. You've reminded me I'm more secure than I ever knew. I should just cast my anxieties on the Lord. No matter what it is, I just cast it on the Lord. And when the devil comes to play my strings, there's no strings to be played. And I can laugh at him and go on with my life. Free and careless. I've done it. That's not the point. Because the spiritual truth is, grace like water flows down to the bottom. God opposes the proud, but He lifts up the humble. And so what is all of this about? It's about as you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, as you willingly come in between the bookends of God's mighty arm, what happens? You get to know this God of all grace intimately and personally. And this God of all grace, you see Him firsthand do four things. Who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, who will Himself do four things. It's one thing to think of God's grace as just something that pours out of Him, and it's just a gentle goodness that's floating around like an aroma. It's quite another thing to see God the Father coming down to Kruger the cock in His unique and, and, and specific circumstances, And starting to bind up my wounds and starting to take hold of my specific anxieties and my pathologies and my deficiencies of my needs, of my anxiety. He comes and he deals with them one by one. He himself, he pours himself out into your specific circumstances. He himself, says the passage, will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Uh, you should have known when you read that passage four words in a row Kruger is definitely going to make something of that and uh this is great to quickly look at what the greek there says because it's a deep it's a deep well and i'll just share a few things there with you he himself will restore the word restore is actually the word for put right he himself will come and do when timothy in weak moments play the violin in our house it's Slightly odd because he goes off pitch at one point, you know, it's a beautiful song We all sing with him and da, 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 and then he stretches not quite far enough and then your your ears just go You know and everything goes, It's a bit like when I introduce Psalm 100 and I I sing and people say mm, that didn't work and we you know you know when you're doing something that's just not quite right or you've cooked something and you take it out of the oven or you take it off the, of the hob and you put it on the table and everyone takes it first bite it smells familiar it looks familiar and you put it to your mouth and you know it's just something wrong something wrong he himself will come to put you right that's what that restore means he himself will come to put things right now I know we are broken, vulnerable people, and there's all kinds of things that's wrong with us. And if we start to think that I need to put those things right, well, it sends you down a path that becomes, that becomes a, a, a very scary path. People start to fix themselves, and the, you can't fix yourself if you are broken. You have to be fixed by someone who is fixed. And so in this passage, God comes and says, I myself will put you right. I will fix you. That's the first one. second one is, He Himself will confirm you. I don't know why the translators mix these two words up, but that's actually in the Greek, strengthen. He Himself will strengthen you. What does the word strengthen mean? Will make you more firm. Uh, will, will give you a stronger, unchanging attitude. Will, will somehow give strength and conviction uh, to your outlook on life. He Himself will cause you to have some inner strength, in other words third one, which is in English strengthened, but a better translation is empower, he himself will empower you, will empower you, empower, I looked in the, in the dictionary but at empower, it's got both the meaning of giving someone a legal right, you're empowered to go into the house that you've just signed a lease for, because your name is on the contract, so it's legally empowered you to put the key into the thing. But also, of course, to empower you, to fill you with power in the way that Samson pulled those pillars in. He was empowered to pull those pillars in. He himself will empower you. Empower you for what? Empower you to resist the devil. Empower you to cast your anxieties on the Lord. He himself, the last one, will establish you. Establish is the words we use for foundation. Building a house, you put the foundation down to secure the house. To give a firm basis for your belief. And this is the heart of the gospel. You see, God here promises that I myself will do these four things. I will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. I myself will put to right what's not right. How? By going to the thing that's not right at all, the cross. The son of God dies on the cross where even the centurion says this man was innocent. He there, expose, he there experiences this, the ultimate dissonance, the ultimate wrongness as he dies on the cross in order to make things right. He himself will confirm or strengthen us. How? He himself will strengthen us by becoming weak on the cross. That's how he himself will do it, by taking our place on the cross where we should be stripped of all our power and be made weak. He takes our place. He himself will strengthen or will empower us How? By being crushed, by being weakened, by being drained from all of his power. That's how he will empower us. He himself will establish us. Well, it's in Peter's uh, letter that we read in verse uh, chapter 2, 4 to 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious. You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house incredible he will establish us how will he stand he himself will establish how will he do he will become the living stone how by dying on the cross he will become the cornerstone on which a new city can rise on which a new outlook on life can rise and this is perhaps where the strongest appeal to non-christians come god has started something new but he has not left us without a foundation for our faith He's not left us without a foundation for this belief. He's not asking you to believe in fairies, or in Santa Claus, or or, or He's not asking you to believe in in an ideology or a way of life where the the proof often, often questions the very foundation of this ideology. No, He comes and He gives you a reason to believe. He says, look, there is a different way of living that is not exposed to anxiety, and not you're not as susceptible to pride so that the devil can play your strings and you can wreak havoc in the world. There is a way of living. It's a way of living between the two mighty hands of God. And you can only come to this mighty living way of God if you see that he himself became weak and he himself died in order to welcome you in into his place of refuge and security. He gives you a basis for belief. It's a rational belief that we have. We can be strong because he became weak. The God, he says, I oppose the proud, but I exalt the humble. He himself lived by what he preached. He himself stooped down and became a man. Even a servant on the cross died there, was then resurrected to life, exalted. And now the promise stands. Everyone who believes in this humble servant will too be exalted at the appointed time. Until then, for us as Christians, the, the promise is just a little while compared to His eternal glory at the end of this passage, verse 10, He says, just a little while, there will be suffering. But then it will come to pass. Because to Him belongs the the might forever, the might in His weakness. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank You so much that You did not leave us to our own devices. That You did not leave us even with a recipe to save ourselves from the onslaught of the devil. That you didn't just give us some myths, some stories... To say, oh, go learn from Adam and Eve... When Satan comes, don't be tempted. Resist him. No, no. You came and you resisted him on our behalf. You came to cast all your anxieties on your father... Fully and completely. You came to live the words of 1 Peter 5... Verses 6 to 11. Fully and completely. And as you died on that cross... You've given us a foundation for our belief. You've become for us the cornerstone for our faith. So as we go out into this day, Father, it feels, you know, it's a humble thing to do. It feels um, strange to come confessing our anxieties, casting our anxieties on you constantly. We love to just blow off steam to each other we'd we'd rather moan and complain to one another about things we hate we 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 love to carry to clothe ourselves with our anxieties so that the world can see that we're not happy or worried or angry that we like to do it like that father but we are giving the devil a foothold and we ask that you would allow us this grace to cast our anxieties on you constantly Please make that the, the practice of Canada Water Church. Please make that the, the DNA, the culture of Canada Water Church. And as we come to the table now, the Lord's table, we ask that this will be an opportunity for us to receive from your table, after we've cast our anxieties, our sin on you, to receive from you nourishment and strength and empowering and establishing so that we can go out into the world with strength and conviction and confidence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.